Hello, and welcome to Tuesdays at APA Chicago, our monthly after-hours lecture series held at APA's Burnham Conference Center. My name is David Morley. I'm a senior research associate at APA and host of Tuesdays at APA Chicago. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. Selected past programs are also available as podcasts, and you can see the APA website for additional details. Tonight we have with us Professor Charlie Hoke from the University of Illinois at Chicago. Charlie is a professor of urban planning and policy at UIC, where he has spent the past three decades studying and proposing that we treat planning as an inherently pragmatic enterprise. He's the author of the Planner's Press book, What Planners Do, Power, Politics, and Persuasion, and has published articles on planning theory, practice, and housing in JAPA, as well as numerous other peer-reviewed journals. The more planners engage in collaborative participation, the more they should expect to find people making judgments about the future tied to current emotional attachments. The use of narrative and storytelling offers a way for professionals to anticipate and counter client attachments. Charlie is here tonight to share some highlights from his research about the effects of emotions on planning processes and to discuss the power of narrative in planning. Please join me in welcoming Charlie Hoke. Thank you, uh, David, uh, and thanks to APA for inviting me to uh, these uh, great talks that you've been hosting for some time. Uh, I'd like to start off uh, with a little bit more about my background. Uh, some people were asking me that before we started. How did you come to pay attention to this? And I think uh, the, the most direct way for this audience is to say because I cared about how planners were treated and the experiences that they had as professionals. And when I turned my attention initially to students, but then also as a practitioner myself uh, long ago, uh, but also on occasion as a, how do you say, a studio advisor and a coach uh, and an internship coordinator, I recognized um, tension, uh, often uh, even a conflict between the uh, knowledge and expertise that that uh, uh, professionals had and the uh, emotional capacity, the emotional sophistication to deal with the complex social political relationships that they had. And I saw a disjuncture between often how we taught knowledge to the students as teachers, uh, even the lore of the profession, how we organize knowledge and information for them and then the complexity of the interaction they faced when they had to make practical judgments. And so that, I've been interested in that for probably three decades or thereabouts. Um, I didn't focus on emotions because I'm thinking back now through the 30, 30 years. So this, this emerged about a decade ago. Uh, the book that uh, uh, David mentioned I wrote in the early 90s after spending uh, 15 years doing internships, uh, coordination with students' projects all across this region, and recognizing the need for people to have a book that described what they did uh, as practitioners at different levels and so forth. That's what inspired that book. Uh, and in writing that book, I discovered how deeply emotions affect our judgments and that, and that the emotions work both positively and negatively with respect to that, that in a sense, emotions are an inescapable part of any judgment we make that we care about. 
that is meaningful, that has consequences. Um, and that often when we do our work professionally uh, for local governments and consultancies, uh, when we don't pay attention to that or we're not able to pay attention to it or we're ignorant of it, uh, often bad consequences ensue. What I'm going to talk about tonight is uh, um, really a reflection conceptually on, well, how do these emotions work and what are the, as we think about how they work, um, what is some of the recent research teaching us uh, about the way people make judgments when they look to the future? And I'm just shifted here to clue you in that I think everybody plans. So we're in this ironic position of being professionals, as many of you are, uh, in a field where everybody can lay claim to doing it. In fact, people that can't plan have miserable lives. Uh, you may know some. Uh, but for most of us, we can plan. I, I, I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but I'm cluing you in that so when I think of planning uh, as a scholar of thinking about this topic, uh, I think of this broad field of planning, including the citizens, the inhabitants, the, the developers, the children, their, everybody's got plans. Um, we then are part of a discipline and a movement to focus on particular kinds of issues, so those public goods, those common areas of vulnerability, those interdependencies uh, that shape everything from public transit to parks to employment policies and so forth. Uh, that's plenty to do. Uh, and what we pride ourselves on is, is that we intelligently and rationally organize the knowledge and information we use to give advice in those arenas. And in fact, that's what I'm charged to do as a, as a uh, faculty, as an academic, part of my responsibility is to ensure that the people who come and work with you are properly trained and prepared, and you want to make sure they, can know, they know how to do intelligent work using the latest techniques, the latest methods, and so forth. So um, I'm not backing away from that expertise and that kind of knowledge, but there is then this tension between our large P, our large scope planning, uh, and then the fact that everybody else out there has plans as well. And they care about their plans, just like we care about our plans. So here's an overview of what I'm going to talk about. First, I'm going to talk about this cognitive emotional gap. Uh, I don't know about you, as a kid uh, growing up in the 50s, uh, we got some folks in my generation out here, uh, part of my socialization as a, as a man was don't cry, be strong, be tough, uh, suck it up, uh, think, be rational. Don't let your feelings rule what's going on. Avoid, avoid emotion. It's destructive. It can lead you to make big mistakes, on and on. I mean, I, this was drilled into me. And then at the same time, I would get contradictory messages. What's wrong with you? Are you a wuss? Are you a wimp? Can't you make a decision? Can't, can't you be decisive? So you get this conflicting information. But you don't know. You're a kid. So you try to do it. Uh, and so I'm going to make the case that I think we create this cognitive emotional gap uh, often in our communication as professionals and in our uh, uh, work. Then I'm going to show what are some of the emotional, uh, what is some of the research on emotions and cognition uh, teaching us. Uh, and as you might tell, because I've already said it, boy, these emotions really matter and they're pretty much inescapable. So it's not a question of not having emotion and having being rational. It's a question of, well, what mix of emotion and cognition are you paying attention to? I quickly review. Uh, 
these two researchers, one is a, a neurophysiologist uh, by the name of Damasio, and he studies initially brain damage and then studied uh, uh, in more complex experimental conditions using brain scanning and other measures, how it is that different emotional conditions relate to different judgments that we make. Uh, and then Martha Nussbaum was down here at the University of Chicago as a philosopher, and she pays attention to how emotions guide us, how emotions, in fact, are part of our moral imagination, and in fact, crucial for making good moral decisions. So I combine these, and then I use some stories, uh, and I'll briefly recount a couple stories to sort of illustrate for you how there's some resonance between these ideas and the, uh, the stories that I narrate. I'll quickly then go into some lessons, but what I'd like to do as I tell those stories is have you guys maybe share some stories. I'm not looking for confessional thing here. It's really just, oh yeah, that, now I could tell you a story about, and we could spend some of this time together relating to not just the storytelling, but how did the emotional intelligence, the emotional insight help you or lead you to, to draw an inference you didn't have. So that would be cool if that happens. All right, here we go. So uh, why do we believe separating feelings and thinking improves judgment? It goes way back to Plato. You know, feelings bias you. They preempt logic. If you ever read the dialogues with Plato, you know, his opponents are always sort of unable to release themselves from emotional attachments. It distorts beliefs. Uh, you succumb to desire. I was also brought up as a Catholic, so a lot of goodness was somehow rational. So if you sinned, you know, you, you were irrational. So learn to be objective, uh, but as also learn to be sensitive, but sensitive like in a controlled way. So you can know what other people are feeling, and you should use that to your advantage when you're being rational. Think advertisers. Then on the other side, uh, unfamiliar reasons to engage uh, emotions, the ones I'm pitching. You know, focus on judgment. How does judgment work? What happens? How do you know what's important, what's unimportant? Uh, think about what fills in when, when things aren't going logical. You try to be logical, then there are these gaps and you fill them in. Uh, how is it that you got your beliefs? Where did they come from? Uh, when you, you scratch those beliefs, you realize mm, there's, there's, there's other feelings associated with it. Uh, and how desires aren't just hydraulic systems, they're shaped by knowledge and experience. And so we learn to use emotions in this sense as tools for our intention. We, we recognize how certain emotions and feelings help us improve the goals and purposes that we think are worthy. Uh, and we more clearly can relate to our audience and to the situation at hand. Well, it's pretty ambitious, but that's the idea. So what do the cognitive psychologists do who I looked at? It's pretty boring research stuff. Uh, these guys looked at different ways in which they could convince you that rationality is hardwired in our uh, developmentally. And they show with these experiments using various kinds of arcane uh, puzzle solving, uh, basically to show how we make judgments. Um, and it's, it's really, as I read this research, trying to prove that we can make optimal judgments with rational cognition, you just despaired after reading at a certain point. I won't go through the regimen, this isn't the place. Um, and then I moved to uh, the second one where they, they looked at simulations. 
uh, and we would like this because the people were looking at how people would make choices when they would go to the shopping mall or where they would go to, to, to shop. And they put them in these simulated environments. And here, when they did the studies, they thought precision isn't really relevant anymore. Uh, optimization is not what it's about. What it's about is getting to the place you want to be relevant and that it all hangs together. You kind of can remember where you parked the car and make your way back. Um, and so the first kind of ignored emotions, purely looking at your puzzle solving ability. And the second started to include uh, uh, this idea that what you felt about what's important helped guide you there. Uh, then I turned to social psychologists, and there's been an explosion in this. And you can include in here uh, behavioral economists, of which there's, there's many in this region. Um, and they're looking at how is it that you, how is it that what we call rational preferences probably aren't so rational and informed by a whole series of emotional attachments when we make judgments. The ones I'm focused on for the, for the article, again, which I won't spend much time on, are counterfactuals. And when we look at car car counterfactuals, we often use them in the context of, well, why didn't things turn out the way I'd hoped? So we, we did something, we made a mistake, we made an error, and we go back and reimagine what would it have been like if, and it may be out of remorse, it may be out of revenge, it may be out of, out of uh, a sense of grieving. Um, and what these guys study is they're trying to see, as psychologists, uh, what value, why do we do this? Why do people pour over this previous thing and, and pay attention to it? Well, I took that and then said, well, let's look at it, turn the counterfactual around from the past and look at it as the future. That's what we're doing when we're planning. We're reimagining how things could be different from the current state in the future. And as we're doing that plausible conception, how are we constructing that? Are we using ideas and emotion? What the cognitive uh, researchers are, are showing uh, as they explore this is, whoa, we have all sorts of biases that we use as we reconsider uh, these conceptions of our past and our future. In fact, we do it for almost every judgment we make. Uh, and the first one is, for example, they, and there's experimental evidence behind these. I'm just skimming through to give you a flavor. Uh, if you say Winnetka versus Wilmette for prestigious suburbs, uh, and people don't know a whole lot about them except that they're fancy suburbs in, uh, in the Chicago region, most of them will pick the first one. We could do Harvard and Stanford, and then reverse Stanford and Harvard, and then we reverse them. People will tend to pick the first thing that's given, the subject over the predicate. Uh, over, overwhelmingly, you can just put in almost any two items. Uh, better over worse. Uh, so if you start out telling people, this is actually very practically useful. If you start off telling people in the village all the doom and gloom stories, there's nothing but trouble here, you know, your sales tax is going downhill, there's, uh, people are leaving town. It, it's much worse uh, than if you, if you talk about, we have challenges we're facing in town, and, but there's a lot of enthusiasm here, and I see a lot of effort being put forward, and you can talk about the same information, but each time you do, you're talking about how we're gonna focus on it positively and what we're gonna do. People will respond much more strongly to that. They'll remember it and they'll consent to it as better, more informed, more simply by reframing it. You've already noticed that in the profession. People use challenge rather than problem, right? Problem has dis disappeared. Well, there's good re cognitive research about that. Uh, great contrast over slight contrast. Uh, so if you, why do all those architects 
you know, when the developer comes in and they present that image, why do they win the day? Because there's a huge contrast between that 20-story tower and the decrepit pit that's out there. Uh, and what you were thinking of was just some modest improvements, get the thing filled in and have a parking lot or maybe some nice landscaping. Everybody wants the 20-story the 20 the, the tower. So that one of the things is a great contrast evokes greater attachment, greater uh, 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 commitment from the audience. Well, this is probably not news to you. All right? These are, this kind of bias is so pervasive, and in fact, many of us professionally have already anticipated this. It's, there are hundreds of these kinds of conditions that shape judgments we make all the time. So uh, my point here isn't to try and uh, demonstrate the uh, uh, efficacy of all this uh, research. I'm going to turn uh, to a recent uh, uh, scholar, Daniel Kahneman, whose book is in probably still in the top 10 called Thinking Fast and Slow. I brought a copy of it even though he's not here to to pitch it. Uh, it's a great, uh, a great book, and he talks about two systems of, of cognition. Uh, literally, of course, we got one brain and there aren't two literal systems, but it's conceptual, how do we function? And part of us functions, in the first case, fast and intuitive, it's automatic. We see an image, we form a judgment. Beautiful, ugly, trustworthy, untrustworthy, automatically and then they do all these clever experiments to show you how you think you're not doing it and how you end up doing it. Um, and just a couple examples. Uh, anchoring, which is one of his most powerful ideas. If we all handed out the APA cup and you all got an APA cup and it was yours and we got you to take it home for a week and then later in the week we said we want to buy the cup back uh, and uh, you know what would you pay for it? And we'd find that the people who had that cup and it owned it for a week versus people who just had the cup given to them and would charge it, want a higher price. Just the very fact of possessing things, we form an anchor, an attachment to it. Possession is an extraordinarily powerful emotional relationship. It's both the emotion of, that we, we will then talk about, oh, this is, I've grown accustomed, I love APA, this is a symbol of my identity. We'll make up all sorts of stories to talk about that attachment. And then they, and, and so I give you up here free versus paid parking. Any of you that tried to, to change a community to see how they should pay for parking versus free, it is like you, you can show them all this evidence and people just feel so attached to those parcel, those especially slant parking on Main Street. So uh, another one, which is uh, disgusting, uh, association. So you read banana vomit. You can't help when you read those two words but feel automatically a sense and they, of course, they have galvanic skin response, they test it and everything. You're responding to that, as if you know the English language. If you don't, of course, if it's nonsense words, you don't get it. So planning communism was the one I loved when I first taught in Iowa. That planning, you say planning, zoning actually could have been the one in some towns in Iowa and where I had my first job and they'd talk about communism. And so the association was like banana vomit. So we have, we have impediments often in parts of the, well, you know, think of what uh, some of our partners out in the West are experiencing with Tea Party folks showing up and associating uh, planners with conspiracies and all sorts of stuff. So this is, seems kind of crazy, but on another level, it's not that far away from some of our peers facing these challenges. Anyway, this guy has spent a lifetime doing this research and he writes about it very cleverly in this book. Here's a, 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 a chart from an article that uh, he published in the, uh, American Economic Review, and it gives you a sort of schematic view of the intuition system one, 
reasoning system too. And under this box here, uh, you have fast, parallel, automatic, effortless, associative, slow learning, emotional. All right, so that's sort of our intuitive self. And that's on all the time. That's how come we can drive and talk on the phone at the same time, right? That's how come we can do all these things. And then on the right, that's what we're teaching our students to do. That's what we do as professionals. That's what we work very hard to do when we're working on those reports and those studies. Um, and these two are always going on, and we pay a lot of attention to the stuff of the left and not a whole lot, uh, uh, I mean, on the, to your right, and not so much on the stuff to the left. And that process word there, emotion, is a big part of that process. Ex moveo is the Latin for moving, getting out and moving. Uh, and so he sees content as your percepts, your stimulation, what's happening, that image, that word you read, the, uh, and then the conceptual representations. And this is what Domicio spends a lot of time on, talking about how different parts of the brain do this. It's not like one thing. You cannot even believe when you start to read this how complex it is to do one thing like banana vomit. It seems simple. It is an extraordinarily complex activity. We have this developmental trajectory, evolution, millions of years, and then each of us developmentally, ten, you know, decades of learning to get to the point where we read those two words and we have this response. So there's an incredible amount of predisposed learning that's habitual uh, and there, we just don't pay any attention to it because we all acquire it through our experience. Uh, and we shouldn't sit around, I think, thinking about it too much. But it's important uh, in a talk like this to just alert you to it. I'm not going to run through all the different uh, emotions, but you can see primary. These are what I call the hydraulic emotions, anger, fear, right? It comes from viscerally. And then your social one, sympathy. It's like you're being pulled. Embarrassment. How, what are they thinking about me? Shame. Oh my God. Is that what I look like? Guilt. Pride. Jealousy. Envy. You know, those are some of the deadly sins. That's how I first learned those. I didn't learn those as emotions. I learned those as the deadly sins, right? So, so I'm looking at this and going, contempt. Is that an emotion? Or is that like a moral activity? So what you see when you start to look at what these folks are studying is that what I learned as a moral vocabulary is actually a psychological vocabulary as well. And both are helping us make, uh, understand how we make judgments. Uh, so what, what Damasio helps us understand, especially, I'll, I'll sort of, there's so much here. Let me punchline with this. Uh, he looked at people who suffered brain damage. And one of the things is that when certain parts of our brain are severely destroyed through disease or trauma, uh, and we can't feel when we, when we, but we can rationally, cognitively understand all the information about the flood plain or the, uh, the social relationships that are in dispute, we can't make a decision. If we can't feel, if we can't have a sense of caring, attachment, all the stuff I was reminding you about, we can't make any decision. Even though we have all the cognitive information, it's all available. So we learn what these guys are reminding us, and it's, all you got to do is remember how you learn stuff as a kid, right? Is you learned it by practicing it. And you didn't say, oh, I'm going to be rational and then I'm going to be emotional. You just did stuff. And then people would say, stop that. Or they'd reinforce it. Good job. And then you would learn. So we all go through that. And if we don't, we're, we're monsters, right? Or we're disconnected. What Nussbaum does, she's a philosopher, and she's, she's reading, the, I won't go there, but reading Stoics and 
talking about this disconnect in modern life between our feelings and our imagination and so forth. But the key thing for us is to remember, because uh, when we learn this analytical information, land use, and projections, and so forth, which I believe in, but, but when you learn it, it's very abstract. It's very removed from the details of people's lives. Uh, so uh, she gives the example of grief, which is how she starts the book beautifully, talking about grieving for her own mother. We don't grieve for mothers in general. Right? I can't have feelings for your mom. I know you have feelings for your mom, if you're fortunate to have one. But I can't grieve for your mother. right? I can only grieve for my mother. Um, I'm not angry with criticism in general. I'm angry because of that thing you said to me, and I disagree with you. So one of the key things that she's reminding us about how we experience emotions is we experience them contextually and directly tied to specific relationships. And so if you think of the two kinds of emotions, the, the distinction I was posing, the hydraulic idea and then this intentional idea, emotions, when we grieve, we are being pulled out of ourselves, metaphorically speaking. We are losing, as it were, through the grief, that experience of our mother being there, which all of us had to have, if we were lucky, to become the people we are. And so she's using that to talk about this experience. So she makes four distinctions, which I briefly will review here, using the meta, uh, example of a storm, which I write about in this essay. A uh, big thunderstorm comes, and you're a young child, and you're scared. It's frightening. It's terrifying. Uh, and you uh, see in the midst of that storm, uh, these feelings just come out of your fear. I can think, I'm picturing Michael Sean who lived across the street from us, and he, when thunderstorms would come, he would go yelling into the house because he was so terrified of thunder. As you get older, you learn how to differentiate between what the storm is, what it might mean, and you can assimilate that storm to a, a broader sensitivity of, oh, it's just rain. It's just the clouds. Uh, you might... Uh, 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 in a sense, see the storm in terms of a narrative. Uh, if you're a religious narrative, you can see the storm as, well, we prayed for rain and it came. Uh, thank God. Uh, you could see the storm meteorologically, like uh, with Tom, uh, who's the guy at WGN down the street? You know, Tom Skilling, right? He has little stories about the, the weather. Um, so, in a way, what she's saying is emotions engage us intentionally. They help formulate for us a better sense of what a storm means, so conceptually, and what it might mean in the future, our purpose. Uh, it shapes our comprehension. So I was getting that, oh, you know, the storm is punishing me. Uh, the reason I'm getting so wet is that I you know, was abusive this morning. I did mean things to people. God is punishing me. Uh, versus, uh, you know, wow, meteorologically, we have been in a drought now for several weeks. This rain is really going to solve the problem of, uh, you know, all these trees are under stress, they're dropping leaves, that's going to stop. Uh, we might feel a sense of joy and wonder at just the sheer incredibleness of watching that 50,000-foot thunderhead build and just feel a sense of connection. It may not be spiritual, just emotional, right? I, I experienced that in Iowa for the first time. I grew up in California. They don't have storms in California. I mean, you know, they have stuff happens. They do now, but they didn't when I was growing up. 
And you didn't even have thunderstorms. You go to Iowa and you watch the clouds build. I, I was, whoa, this is totally awesome. Charlie, come in out of the rain. So then uh, you find, uh, uh, and then she's, uh, she's uh, making the point, which I made earlier, that emotions help us understand the salience of things. So it's my mother. Uh, and if I didn't grieve for my mother, you guys would say, wow, you, you really, something's wrong with you, or you, your mother must have really been bad, right? I mean, people would have to come up with an, an understanding of why it is you didn't feel that grief. Uh, and of course, we can think of other stories like that. All right, so uh, I'm going to go through two stories, uh, maybe one story. Uh, I'll tell the story of Valerie. Uh, Valerie was, this is now 20 years ago almost, and I think we were building prisons across the United States like stink, more, certainly more than affordable housing. And Valerie was working for a national consulting firm. Uh, and she would go out to counties at different states across the country, which were, in effect, in play for a prison. And she would be advising them about their opportunities and the value of, uh, uh, and, uh, of the, uh, having a prison and what it might mean for them. And I want to read, because uh, I think it's in the details that you get a feel for the story. I want to read what uh, Valerie was saying, and this is an interview long ago. Um, At first I thought if I lied to people it wouldn't make that big a difference, but I could never bring myself to do it. When When I went on my first site visit, I traveled with a colleague who lied. He would say whatever he thought the audience wanted to hear. He said things like, it will not be that bad, the prison, and that he wanted the residents to believe that the prison itself was a good thing. I believe that the people left a lot more afraid than when they first came. Many seemed resigned and defeated. They felt the coming of the prison was inevitable. They lost the sense that their participation mattered. At least with honesty, residents will trust you and listen to what you say. Partly, they have no other choice, uh, but uh, uh, because this prison is, is, is very likely to come. But to trust me uh, is, um, gives them an opportunity. So if I establish trust, it gives them an opportunity to make their participation count. But they also trust me because I speak sincerely and honestly. I tell them that what they say matters, and then I make every effort to take what they say into account, use it in setting priorities. Many of my colleagues leave work whistling, carefree. I carry this stuff home. I spend 60-hour weeks thinking about the people. What is best for them? Am I exceeding my authority? Did I leave something important out? Maybe I should do something more. I make these huge charts on my walls at home and divide them into parts, one for each county. Then I paste all the information I've collected, demographics, economic stuff, reports, notes, and pictures. Picture all those TV shows now with the forensic. This is like 1992 she's doing this. I include the fears and hopes of residents. I read each one and compare the information, weighing good and bad consequences for each county. What people say matters most to me, I think. I delay making final recommendations because I always feel doubts. I'm never really sure. I get scared that I'm recommending a choice that won't really prove beneficial. Once a final choice is made, I leave feeling bad that choices B, C, D, and E didn't get the prison. Getting to know the places and people in detail meant that I feel the frustration and grief of not helping the places that deserve a prison but didn't get one. This is just talking like you and me right here straight out of the 
you know, I did a little bit of editing, but whoa. Now, I, she, to me, is a great exemplar of what Nussbaum was talking about. And I did this interview a decade before I started to conceive this essay. And then the, I went back and rediscovered this because I was, I, you know, I kind of remember. And when I read it, whoa, this is what we do when we're doing our jobs well. When you hear this report, this is a person to me who's a credit to the kind of professional person that we have or believe that, that we want to be. And why is that? Well, I think Valerie was describing combining attention and sensitivity to emotional uh, emotions, but not in of themselves. So it's not like the joke from California, like, hey, man, how are you feeling? And let's talk about our feelings. No, not that kind of self-conscious narcissism. It's rather attending to the rich avenues of entry that emotions allow us to the moral concerns, the social concerns, the political concerns that people have about a decision like a prison in a small community. It's worthy of attention. And she even had kind of a method that she had worked out. Very rarely did people in my interviews tell me their methods. And here was one laying it out and describing it. And it turns out to be in a method that combines that intuitive emotional sensibility. She was taking what, what uh, uh, Kahneman talked about as the intuitive side and linking it with the reflective side. Now, would this work in a regression class or statistics class? Or No, because those tools are all about a precision. They're for different purposes. So let's don't confuse that. Those are good tools, but that's not what she was trying to do. She was trying to reconcile simultaneously what are the purposes that these people have and the meaning of those purposes for each place in relationship to all the data about cost benefits, community impacts, risks, and so forth. Uh, and I, I can't go on because we're not going to have enough time, but she talks about her relationships with the guys, and this is 1992, and it's, they're not all that happy to see her. And then the punchline is, she's the best one. She, people love her. They all follow. I mean, the, the outcomes that she gets in the reports, even the communities that don't get it, they say, that person was good. We, we wish we got it. Uh, so I think there's significant payoffs as we understand this. So what are the lessons here? Uh, hey, my mom told me this. My dad, in his better moments, told me this. Uh, this is what we tell each other and remind each other. So I'm sorry, it's kind of boring in a way. What is it that the research on emotions is teaching us? It's teaching us intuitively, we automatically form prejudgments, stereotypes, biases. They're inescapable. And, and those come to us from sometimes millions of years ago and sometimes what happened this morning and sometimes what our parents taught us. So, and we don't have time to sort it out, it just happens. And then the, the, the other part though, this reflective, this deliberate part, this professional part, is what we use to mediate and organize and uh, cope with those moments of urgent intuition. And the distinctions I'm using here, and I'm, they're certainly not the only ones, is, uh, you know, you can be smart and precise and still kind of stupid, right? And I'll raise my hand at having done that many times as an academic. Uh, you're telling that student, student what's wrong and blah, 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 and then you realize it's not about this. <laughs> it's not about the, that person is suffering. They're depressed. There's a, you know, you're missing the boat, Charlie, right? Because I was paying attention to getting something done and not paying attention to the relationship. So, 
it's not, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't want to get things done or abandon being rational. I'm not saying that. It's just that you really got to figure out how to integrate these two. Uh, character versus clever, that's, that's my grandmother told me that. She had a different version of what to count, but uh, that's what it was about. And I think the most important is this last one. I think this is at the core of, of, of what it is that we offer people when we turn to the future is a sense of hope about the nastiest and most complicated problems they face. And many of the other people don't. They want to cleverly elude the, or lead or hide or dispose of the complexity that we face, the costs that are involved. Um, and uh, I tell a story in here of uh, you know, flooding, which is like, hey, kind of a basic issue. And think of, of the plans. We have, we have so many plans for flooding. You know, water goes downhill. You guys know that? And it puddles up. And if you have hard surfaces, it can't be absorbed into the ground, right? And the more hard surfaces, the faster it flows. Right? We, this is like, they knew this thousands of years ago, all right? Because we got archaeological evidence. People still build in floodplains, right? You guys are experienced with this, right? So why is it we can't get these folks to stop doing this, right? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but most of them are not problems of rationality. Most of the problems are problems of attachment, are problems of uh, unwillingness to change ways of life, uh, greed, money, right, on and on. But when we do our plans, here's just one sort of illustration, and you think of some place like Katrina, where they actually had lots of plans to show the devastation. Uh, the people involved didn't have a sense that the planners had thought about the risks to them and what it would mean. They hadn't had a sense of what that would mean for them. So we did the plans, we did the simulations, and it showed the impacts, but there wasn't then that final step which showed what it would mean to people. And why? Well, it's really expensive, it takes a lot of time, it's but in a way, that's part of what may, may be missing as we think about the responsibility of why it is they show up and they say, you're the reason, and then our enemies, see, you didn't do your job. <laughs> of course, ignoring the fact that we did it, because look at those bad outcomes that came. Uh, and then if we had relationships with the people and they understood the meaning, they'd say, well, you know, it flooded, but we're not blaming you. You warned us, and we understand you actually had compassion. It's these guys over here that didn't listen to you, right? We don't, that doesn't seem to happen, but it's partly because we don't have those relationships. Uh, and I'm not blaming us. It's a tough job. So uh, here are questions for future uh, research that I put at the end. Uh, and uh, this is where I get into the issue of in a way, we tell stories and we make arguments. I think that's a very simple way of talking about how we do uh, the uh, rational self, this, this part that Kahneman calls system two. Uh, mostly we do arguments, at least, uh, and in school it's really good, it's sort of, uh, not good, it's easy to teach arguments because they can be abstract, you can deal with methods in different cases, you can do comparative cases, you can deal with data and on and on. It's harder to do stories because good stories are always specific. They always have details, and they're tied to time and how things develop over time. Uh, we can do short stories, but uh, the ones that work are evoking all sorts of assumptions off stage. So you already have to have had the experience to appreciate the story. Uh, and so, you know, my mom always told me, Charlie, don't tell stories. But she meant don't lie, right? I still told stories to her. You know, usually they were truthful, and then sometimes they weren't. Uh, and then there's the communication issue, which I was just talking about. 
And it's really relationship building uh, around very specific things. Uh, and many of you do this. So I'm not saying we don't do this, and many professionals do this. Uh, and we do this in various and different ways. Uh, and then, of course, the bigger issue is how do we evaluate, uh, you know, when you have the case of this young woman who is doing prison planning, was she a good planner or not a good planner? Were those good plans or not? It's not an easy thing to judge. It might have been very expensive what she did. Her other colleagues could say she's very inefficient. And, and she was making the case, well, I really did take it into account. Well, she might have been very sincere, but truly, she was just missing the boat. This was, and so we have those debates all the time. And of course, we're making judgments based on arguments and reason, but we're also making emotional claims on each other's attention. What's important? What do we care about? I think that's inescapable. So I don't think we want to substitute and make that disappear. Um, so then I go through, uh, we could go through these, but I'd rather turn it over to you. I did a sort of thought experiment with the homeless in Charlotte and then uh, advertising and so forth. But I'll, I'll hold that to the side. Let's, let's do some, uh, I mean, I can do it later. I see a couple of faces, but uh, I'm curious about if you guys want to share stories at all. Yeah, let's, let's hear some uh, stories from the audience and some questions as well. Actually, I had a question, Okay. and it's sort of like a statement, but the question is, early on you used banana and vomit, and I think the, my question is, I think we were supposed to have an immediate response, is that right? But then, you know, the more facts we have, we've got to be careful. I don't know about other folks, but I thought about, okay, banana and vomit. I think, okay, well, I think we're supposed to say banana is good and vomit is bad. I guess that's what we're supposed to say. No, we're not supposed to say that. No, the point okay. isn't that you don't even have time to say anything. It's automatic. You didn't. You already made the judgment. It's milliseconds they're measuring. Okay, okay, but it's not because a person vomits. That means they're trying to get rid of something that's poisonous or something that's bad in their system. Now, a banana, as we know, I think most of us probably think, well, that's a good fruit. But recent studies have shown it's not really a good fruit. So I mean, I, I'm not sure where we're going. Well, you're what, what you're using you're you, you're illustrating beautifully the point of oh. well we're going to deliberate we're going to turn our to deliberations and and our reflective thinking to to as it were compensate for this automatic response. But what if what if you were in the the Kahneman's class he would hook you up or the experimental lab he'd hook you up and show you that when you read those two words before you even could utter a word you'd already had this flash of, and what it is, is it's a, it's, we would call it, if Damasio was looking at the part of the brain, he'd say, that's disgust. You felt disgust. And then, of course, you could argue with him. No, I didn't. I was thinking, but then they would say, yeah, well, sure, that's what we do. Uh, and I'm not saying you have to agree with this. I'm just alerting you, oh, this is pretty interesting. If this is true, it makes, in a way, it gives us opportunities, but it means we're faced with this dilemma. Charlie, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about, so from your perspective as somebody who's training new professional planners, uh, how do you train new planners to be aware of the importance of emotional intelligence and how to bring that into their practice? And do you see that, are there any planning programs out there right now that are doing a good job of sort of connecting the dots between building a, uh, a toolkit of here are the skills that you're going to use when you're being a rational actor as a professional planner versus here's the toolkit of emotional skills that you'll need to use to be an effective communicator. Well, I think, uh, well, I don't think we should have like emotion on the PAB criteria, you know, and say, 
This is one of the criteria. No, I don't. And just talking about emotion can lead to the kind of, right, where you're sparring and, no, I think the way we learn this is through the, so if you look at the current way, things we do, we teach uh, ideas, we teach methods as you're talking about, and then we say, do stuff, and let's see how you do. It's in the third thing is where you learn this. You practice it. Could be a studio, could be internship, could be projects, and you're working together with other people, you're working with clients, you're working with, and then as the coach, uh, assuming I can play that role, or, or there's sometimes the students do it themselves, because they have different levels of experience, different sensitivities, so I'll watch them do it among each other. And you know, uh, some of us are more, how could you say, morally developed than others. They come in, some of my students are 22, some of them are in their 40s. Uh, and it's not just life experience like content, it's so that people are wiser and the experience leads them to make better judgments. And so they may be more patient or they may have better examples because they're drawing on that life experience versus the 22 year old. It doesn't mean one's a better person than the other, it just means when we get into the project setting and we're talking about what the goals would be, the 22 year old might say, this would be the goal. You know, because they just learned it and they're dying to say it, right? And, it's, and everybody smiles, right? Because they all remember being 22 and wanting to, right, say it. And then you have the 36 year old sitting there going, hmm. And they're still thinking about the problem. They're going, I don't, I don't, I don't know, right? And that's a good thing uh, at the beginning, not at the end. <laughs> you want to be. So the way I think emotions, uh, all I'm trying to do here is alert us in a way to the obvious and then say don't cut short the uh, emotional activity that you witness either in your clients or in my case students let it work out and then don't try and alleviate you know somebody gets angry right so someone gets angry in a project class if I believe in my old logic I'd say David stop being angry can't be angry in this class now the new Charlie that is where this would say David what are you angry about all right, that's the big difference, right? And, but it's a really big difference because you're, if I tell you not to be angry, try not to be angry. Don't think about a naked person who's walking right behind you in that window, right? And you can't help it automatically. Everybody thinks of a naked person, right? Because you can't not, because that's the way language works. It already, so we want to use that to our advantage to my, from my point of view. Why? Because when we plan, we're not just planning for ourselves. We're planning for all these people, only some of whom we know, and all the others we're trying to infer from the data, the other materials, and then we're taking from these relationships, the supervisors, the representatives, the elected officials, the people who show up, what is it that we're trying to do that'll make a difference in these people's lives? Whether it's you know flooding in those basements or it's um, ambitious housing projects. So it's central to the work that we do. And sometimes we can't spend a lot of time on it because we right, have constraints. But what I'm trying to get the students to learn is oh, that's the constraint. Do you not care? Do you pay no attention to that because you're not gonna make, it's, it's billable hours, you're not gonna make enough or whatever. Um, and then what they experience in the context of the simulation or the project, or in some cases it's a, it's a real project, they have to do a kind of examination. In the old days I'd call it examination of conscience. Now I'd call it, well, what's important? What values do you think are important here? And how do you know that? How do you make a judgment? And the students really, then they look to me and say, tell me how to make the judgment. And then I tell them the story of like this. 
I tell them what this person did, or I tell them what that person did, or I'll say, what did you do in another life experience? It doesn't mean that I won't have an opinion, but I don't want them to get the idea like that I'm the expert and I know, because it's a judgment call. I can help them on, that's not the way to do the spreadsheet. That's an inappropriate memo. That's not the way to think logically about those you know, land use relationships. But when it comes to what is the most important thing, uh, I can offer arguments about that, which I do in other classes. But in the project class, you show me. You're the, you're the one who's going to be the professional. You make the judgment. And it's hard, because like, you, know, you see the 20-year-old making this same stupid judgment, right? And, but that's OK, because they're going to learn. Because I'm there to say, whoa, what did you learn there? What well, was great? Hmm. Well, what do you think the consequences were, right? And you get them to then, because if they still think it's great, they didn't learn, right? And that's an emotional problem as well as a conceptual problem. I have to help them realize, oh, I screwed up, without them feeling like they're bad. And, and then, you know, if you don't succeed, you'd had a bad day teaching. I also think professionally, you guys are doing that as well uh, when you're talking to folks. Yes, sir? Well, I had probably a similar experience that you had. I was in southern Louisiana at the t right after Katrina. And I went to one of the, I, I guess, what do you call it, a charrette on here? The, the first day of the charrette, where there was a, a planner such as yourself in a room with about probably 10 to 15 times as many people on the first day telling uh, people that they may not be able to, or it wouldn't be prudent to, to uh, rebuild in all the areas. And, and he was talking to people whose whole life was in that area, many of which in their 50s have never gone 40 miles out of town. So I was in fear of him. I thought they were going to string him up. <laughs> but by the fifth day on here of going back and forth with ideas, on the fifth day, I was amazed at the transition. I don't know if they all accepted it, but at least to the point where they would listen to the, the to his uh, suggestion. It was more like doing canals yeah. through, through some str strategic areas. So what would you, now that you know that, what would you coach this guy? He comes up to you before the meeting. How do you, th what, how do you think I should start the meeting? What do you think he, what, what would you tell this guy? I, I, was, I was there to learn because I, I didn't have a clue. I was amazed at his at being that brave because I knew the emotions. Uh, Would you, in, in do you think he was emotionally detached, too emotionally detached, or just brave like, this is the message and they better get it because no, he by God, it'll flood again. He, wasn't, he, he was very, very shrewd in, in ah. the way he presented the message, but he did it honestly. They could see in his face that he wasn't telling them what they wanted to hear. He was telling them in his judgment, and I guess he was one of, I think Duarte, if I'm not mistaken, ah. he was one of the superstars on here, that, that it was something that, I don't know if they accepted, but it was in their best interest, that he, he was there. And he was so honest and with, with them that they, at least they, they didn't string him up, at least there that first go. night. Uh, this would be a hypothetical situation, but I actually have seen this play out. Uh, what would you recommend that a planner do if you're in a community meeting and someone who's not so happy with a proposed change to the community makes a very nasty personal accusation about the planner, um, which may be completely false, not based in reality at all. And 
how would you respond to that? Because outright denial may sort of open the door for this person to argue with you in the middle of the public hearing and lose the room. So, so what's the context of the setting? Who else is in the room? What, what's a little bit, you don't have to, don't, I'm not asking you to tell me the, the details so that the hypothetical could be real, but a little bit more about the context. Uh, context being um, that an accusation might be made that uh, this person who's working with the municipality or um, some other local branch of government that might be in the room as well, if they have some personal connection to the developer and they stand to find gain, it, uh, gain financially from the project, or perhaps it could be an issue over gentrification and the accusation might be made that they're racist and they're trying to push out the existing population. So it's a combination of you're going to benefit at the expense of others and you're racist uh, at the same time. And the, the people in the room are members of the general public and public elected officials. Is my supervisor in the room as well? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a moment which you would look forward to in your... <laughs> so I think it, I have my stock response. We'd need more details to, to answer it. We're not going to run out of time. but. I would look to, there's probably people in this room that have been in that situation to some extent or another. Uh, I have been in it, but not with maybe quite the level of threat. And I certainly experienced it talking to people. So it's not uncommon. It's not frequent, but it's not uncommon. What do you think we would advise this hypothetical person to do? What would be the response? And rather than me doing it, because I really don't have a particular expertise. I'm, I'm sharing it. Yeah, here we go. Brave woman. Yes. So you'd turn to, you have a, tr a confederate in the audience you can turn to? Do you know somebody? Sometimes it's not even intentional. It's just that there is somebody there. There's usually that, someone else who'll say, we can't talk that way in this way. kind of place. We Absolutely. have to be civil. I mean, that's what someone else comes in and pulls your fat out of the fire. So wait is one piece. Just wait a while for the room. Just let it sit out there is one piece. And then hope that the cavalry comes. Did, did you, same Another, you know, there's different strategies that people have adapted. You can fall down and on your sword. You can go, uh, you can say thank you very much, and just go right on and let the room decide if they believe that this is worthy of public attention or not. You know, you got to have allies to do that. Uh, if you're all alone and you're the newbie and right, so I mean, there's history and context matters. If you don't have any relationships, you're the stranger, then that probably wouldn't be wise. You'd hope for the wait. A long time and see what happens. And waiting in that setting is not easy, right? But what you're really waiting for is what's behind that. When people make egregious claims, for which there's very likely, given the circumstances, no moral, no evidentiary basis, other people in the room will recognize this as, as, a, as an attack. Not necessarily, they won't be coming to your defense. They're coming to the defense of the integrity of the group. They don't want to be part of such an event. That's what makes the Tea Party stuff so nasty, is that they bring all their folks in, and then they systematically do this. So there isn't a sense of the group trying to reach some agreement. It's just an all-out attack. And so then all the efforts of deliberation are foolish, and you, you just there's no point. Because the idea behind this, right, of a deliberation is that we genuinely, we might disagree, but we are trying to, to see some common area. That's a feeling as well as a, uh, as well as a cognitive idea. And if people aren't going to willingly sort of play that, 
and we've all been there, then it breaks down. I just wanted to say I think it's a really interesting um, subject area that you're working on. I look forward to seeing the essay because I think it, my impression just or feeling from, from your presentation is that something about that first topic you raised of what is a planner when we all, there it is, thank you. Um, it, it is what defines planning and it's, it's very hard for us to explain this I think outside this room or to to the general public or to other professions. And I've seen in my career um, great differences in the way engineers and planners handle issues. And it's the fine, the uh, sharp pencil versus the magic marker. And, and I think, I, th I tend to think we as planners intuitively understand some of those dynamics that you had on the, on the tables. And you learn that through uh, osmosis in a way. You see how other people handle the, angry public or the tea party or whatever else and you and you without realizing it you don't put it in that context of, of your table on the on the screen but but it sort of defines what we do and and so we 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 teach as you do uh, i guess to your interns and, and senior professionals teach the younger members of the staff how to react how to handle questions but also how to how to handle process how to design processes that accommodate what you had on the screen. I think it's interesting. But but I think if you if there were engineers in this room, you would not they would have been falling asleep. Well these guys, Kahneman and Tversky, the others, they, they spent their life trying to talk to economists who are the engineers of the social science world. And that's why they didn't they didn't have much of an audience, but he got a Nobel Prize eventually. It overwhelmed them with evidence. Was there an answer to that question, are there any engineers in the room? I've uh, listed myself on the comment sheet here as semi-retired. That's because the state of Illinois is a slow payer. But I've worked for, since the early days of the National Environmental Policy Act, as a planner with engineers on highway and rail projects. And it is at least 40 years ago, hello Dudley, I'm, well, you're almost as old as I am. <laughs> um, a very interesting transition back in the 1960s was on the part of IDOT, uh, I'll call it abandonment, uh, the departure from the format of a group full of people all at the same time getting the information and commenting and inciting each other to the open house format in which successive formats of material that could be prepared by hand and then later by computers exhibited the existing and the proposed people had a three or three and a half hour period to come in, drop in, walk around the exhibits, make comments, but they avoided the confrontational setting in which sparks could fly and flames could catch. Um, and yet did provide then for the slow and deliberate evaluation by engineers and a few obnoxious planners back at home base to accommodate. And I was curious, I just wrote down here at the very beginning of your talk um, what planners do after the meeting is over. Anticipate and counter or anticipate and accommodate. I wrote down anticipate and counter. But at any rate, after having diffused, um, broken up in time and space and with the opportunity for 
staff and consultants to walk around and listen to these and receive them, having diff diffused the emotion in time and space, these things could be accommodated. Well, but remember, we're all planners at one level, so. Yeah, well. And they had more budgets than planners at the time I began allying myself with them. Had money to work with, and we'll see. So on anticipation, just one quick comment. Think of anticipation as a concept that is inherently emotional. Uh, I always thought of it thinking what I was going to get for Christmas. So I'd always anticipate Christmas, and anticipation for me was this excitement of getting what I had wished for, what I hoped for. And if you think of anticipation as an ally, uh, that can be a different way of thinking of, than projections or predictions, uh, which is often how we talk about it. And so uh, we can use everyday language to, in a way, uh, do professional work. We'll take uh, one more comment or question here for the sake of time. On your uh, scenario about the accusation, uh, if there's someone else in the room like a chair or a village president or something, I think the best way is for them to acknowledge the accusation, point out that planners must abide by a code of ethics, and then encourage the accuser to put that um, statement in writing for further investigation. That way you're not setting up a further we versus them thing and you may quickly turn the rest of the room in support of the planner. Yeah, that's great if you have someone that, that clever and uh, hopefully it'd be your supervisor. If you're, the, if you're the one, if it's the planning director or the city manager or something, they could play that role. Wouldn't it be great if it would be the attorney? Unfortunately, when I did my research, the attorneys were rarely on the same wavelength as the planners. Uh, so anyway, I was very grateful that uh, I got to come and share these ideas with you. I hope you found them stimulating, and uh, uh, good luck out there. Let's have a round of applause for Charlie. On behalf of the American Planning Association, I want to thank Charlie Hoke for a thought-provoking and informative program on emotions and planning. Thanks also to the many APA staff members who help make this program possible every month. Information on previous and future presentations is available on APA's website, www.planning.org, under the section called Events. I'm David Morley.